0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Arnab Roy, an assistant professor of world literature and postcolonial theory at Florida Gulf Coast University. Today I have the great privilege and honor to Welcome, Professor Anki Mukherjee and Professor Atto Krishan, who will be speaking about their fascinating new edited volume from Cambridge University Press, Decolonizing the English Literary Curriculum. Before I begin, uh, I would like to briefly introduce our guests to the audience. Uh, Professor Anki Mukherjee is Professor of English and World Literatures at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Wadham College. Her recent books are Unseen City, The Psychic Lives of the Urban Poor, Cambridge University Press 2021, which won the Robert S. Liebert Award for outstanding scholarship in applied psychoanalysis. And what is a classic post-colonial rewriting and invention of the canon. Stanford University Press 2014, which won the British Academy Prize in English Literature in 2015. Professor Mukherjee's other publications include Aesthetic Hysteria, The Great Neurosis in Victorian Melodrama and Contemporary Fiction, and The Edited Collections, A Concise Companion to Psychoanalysis Literature and Culture, and After Lacan. Professor Mukherjee has published extensively in peer-reviewed literary journals and sits on the editorial boards of several international ones. She has been a research fellow of the British Academy, visiting fellow at the Australian National University, and the, and the John Hinckley visiting professor at Johns Hopkins. She was invited faculty at the Institute of World Literature at Harvard University in 2023. Professor Mukherjee is currently writing a very short introduction of postcolonial literatures forthcoming with Oxford University Press. Decolonizing the English Literary Curriculum, which is the volume that we will be discussing today, and which is which she has co-edited with Professor Atto Quessen was published last year. Our other guest, Professor Atto Quessen, is the Jean G. and Morris M. Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and Chair of the Department of English at Stanford University. His books include the two-volume edited Cambridge History of Postcolonial Literature. Tragedy and Postcolonial Literature, which won the Warren Brooks Prize for Literary Criticism, and Oxford Street, Accra, City Life, and the Itineraries of Transnationalism, which won the Urban History Association Prize. He is the editor of the Cambridge Journal of Postcolonial Literary Inquiry and the host of Cambridge Contours, the Cambridge Literary Studies Hour. He is also, he has also curated Critic, Reading, Writing, a YouTube channel dedicated to themes in the Interdisciplinary Literary Humanities. He is elected fellow at the Ghana Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Royal Society of Canada, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Anki Atto. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to speak with me today. Thank you, Rando. Thank you, Anna. So, so um, let me start with the first question. It's basically, I'll ask you to introduce yourselves. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your academic journeys? What inspires you to do what you do? As a scholar as a writer as a teacher uh, can we start with you anki thank you
0: um i'll start with my phd which was on the history of hysteria and victorian literature and culture and uh, when i finished my phd my first job was at oxford where it turned out that i was going to be succeeding a very formidable postcolonial studies scholar namely robert young so i felt a bit ashamed that you know as somebody uh, was not only indian origin but born in a born and raised in a small town who also studied in a small town that i was going to be um, kind of in a way bringing uh, to a halt, this gallop of post-colonial studies ac- across uh, um, across Oxford. So I started doing more post-colonial literature teaching. Of course, as I said, you know, I grew up in India. I have five Indian languages and I've always studied post-colonial literature and, and, and theory. But my focus was more Victorian studies. Um, and what brings these two fields together, I would say, is sort of kind of a very deep seated interest in psychoanalysis. And uh, my my teaching is English literature, 1760 to the present. So it's a very, very vast range, you know, um, comprising of Romantic, Victorian and modern literature. But my research tends to be sort of in specialized sort of areas of this particular, this vast spread. And I would say that, you know, my methodology is very strongly influenced by, of course, postcolonial studies, world literature studies, but also the history of medicine and uh, in particular, the history of psychoanalysis. Thank you so much. Uh,
2: Atom? Well, for me, I um, I decided to do a literature degree against my father's. So my father wanted me to be a lawyer, but I decided to do a literature degree because when I was going to university, I was very, very lazy and, uh, and I wanted to do a subject that will allow me to spend as much time in bed as possible. And literature seemed to be just the right candidate. I, have, Of course, I was an avid reader. And uh, so I spent much of my undergraduate years, apart from, of course from going to lectures and classes, reading in bed. It was the most pleasurable, I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed uh, being in bed and reading. Of course, what I didn't realize was that um, it got more and more complicated you know, as you proceeded. So that now I, I actually hardly, I barely sleep. People who know me will will will, will, uh, will will attest to that. And then I went to graduate school at Cambridge University, and my, my PhD was on um, literary history, Nigerian literary history. I come from Ghana, but I did Nigerian literary history. And that was an eye opener because uh, literary history allows you uh, to see things in a long durée, uh, in terms of both uh, rhetoric, you know, rhetorical devices, and and the relay of uh, things uh, uh, among texts and, and discourses. Uh, and and that that book also that that PhD was published, and then I I, I got a job at Cambridge. And like uh, Anki, I didn't know what postcolonialism was, even though I was doing postcolonial studies at the time. So it was in conversation with a friend of mine from South Africa. She's Indian from South Africa, who said, I should learn more about this field. In fact, she was responsible for my second book on postcolonial studies. And so I delved into it. And of course, I then had the shock of recognition because actually much of what I was doing in African literary studies was indeed, it fell into postcolonial studies. Anyway, uh, to cut a long story short, I, I continued in that trajectory. I would say that um, the thing that motivates me most and that you know I enjoy most about doing what I do is actually teaching, you know, so mm-hmm. communication. I always say that the classroom is the place of revitalization, is, is a place where once I interact with young minds or other minds, I feel revitalized uh, in my own mind. So that that that's the, the main driver is, and so the, the volume, uh, Decolonizing the English Literary Curriculum, is about teaching. Is about how we teach what we teach in a way that would be more accommodating to perspectives that have hitherto not been given enough
1: um, space. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, so I, I think that kind of seamlessly brings us to our next question. Uh, so uh, can you uh tell us about your book, Decolonizing the English Literary Curriculum? And and I mean, this is just like if you were to identify, say, like two or three major interventions of this book, what would they be? So Atto, can we start with you? Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: Well, the you know for a very long time, at least since the 1960s, and speeding up in the 1980s, there have always been calls to reform the curriculum to make it more representative, and this was partly under pressure from the demographic changes in both in Europe and in 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 North America. So, demographic changes also meant that more black and brown folk were now at universities and they wanted to see themselves reflected in what they were they were they were being taught as as literature. Uh, In a way, that argument about additions, you know, so reform the curriculum originally was just add more of us, add more of brown and black folk and so on and so forth. That argument is now, as it were, it's been won in the sense that there's no respectable uh, English department anywhere that will resist that argument. The question then arises, two questions arise. Uh, one is uh, what to add, for the lots to add, and how to teach what is added. So that's one of the things that we, we, we think about in, the, in our volume. How do you teach minority writing? And there are certain principles I should add very quickly that decolonizing is context-specific. So, decolonizing in New Zealand and Australia is not the same as decolonizing in Wisconsin, Madison. You, you have to do something different because the context is different. But there are general general rules, um, which include uh, the sort of um, taking these texts not just as sources of of, of uh, anthropological information. Because unfortunately, that's how minority texts are read in the dominant culture. They read as a guide notes, (laughs) you know, so uh, you read the Chino Achebe to know about Igbo culture or you read an Indian author to know about Indian culture and so on. But we uh, and this is a very important point that these are first and foremost literary texts. We have to embed them in certain contexts, but ultimately you have to give them the kind of serious uh, attention that they require. Uh, the final thing, there are many other things that we, our volume is trying to do. Our volume is also trying to show the wide diversity of uh, what we, uh, me, Anke and I call uh, perspectives from equity-seeking groups. You know so it's not only uh, postcolonials who have been trying to shake the curriculum the curriculum has been shaken by women's groups women have tried to shake you know gender uh, non-conforming uh, groups Uh, you know, Jews, uh, Muslims, uh, native um, uh, indigenous populations, and so on. So the other point that we try to insist upon is that the decolonizing curriculum has to be intersectional. It's not just from a post-colonial perspective. It has to be from various perspectives all at once because the point is to seek equity for all, not for some.
1: Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. Anki?
2: Yes, and
0: it's something that, you know, I have been thinking about because um, it's not just doing a book called decolonizing the English literary curriculum, the presence in the academy of uh, someone like our or someone like me is in itself doing uh, or, or doing some kind of disorganizing or dismantling work, whether, uh, you you know, though we are in my case, you know, this is something that that um, made me write what is a classic, because one of the things that I found almost absurd is that, you know, um, I'm someone who grew up in Bordhuman, a small town in West Bengal, I read almost all the classics that I now teach such as Jane Eyre in Bengali before I read them in English. And now I was the sort of instrument through which the English canon was being transmitted to a group of undergraduates, most of whom were from, they were sort of home students, you know, at a stretch, home and EU, as we used to call them before Brexit. uh, so, um, so it, it is this kind of absurdity of of your own place where you're, co- which you're constantly thinking about that, what exactly, how, how exactly am I repeating with the difference? What kind of uh, unwitting subversion is this? So this is there, but decolonization is a much stronger word than this, this kind of work that I have just described, which could be sort of, you know, in a way, the deployment of a post-colonial worldview or post-colonial lived experience to the transmission of the canon decolonization is a sort of a, a more radical process you know it is about a complete um disorganization and upheaval and it is when you say decolonization it also kind of means that post-coloniality hasn't quite come to be so I, I do think that we wrote this uh, we, we we started thinking about this um in the in in the in the immediate context of um George Floyd's murder in the immediate con- context of the return of you know let's say something like rose must must fall to oxford um and and thinking that how can how how on earth can the classroom not try to connect itself to, as Arto said, these sort of intersectional calls for social change, for social equality, you know, for equity. And and, and decolonization is about, you know, it is not just a reversal, it's, it is it, it is not a reversal of the violence of colonialism, but it is kind of ushering in a very different um, method. It's not, you know, this homeopathic injection of, of brown and black and East Asian writing, but kind of really Trying to understand the value criteria that that you know um, that direct and that kind of inform um, what we read, uh, how we teach, who we teach this to, you know the different kinds of um, you know access um, and uh, outreach possibilities of teaching English, um, so. I would say that and, and to answer your question, what do you think we are doing that will leave a lasting impact? I mean, we are thinking like a collective, a, a non-identical collective. And one of the key strengths of this book is not just a sort of you know geopolitical scope, but we are also sort of as Atu said that, you know, he likes to teach, as do I. You know, I mean, teaching is um, sort of, you know, it is one it is a, it is the space where I'm kind of most unproblematically myself and uh, we are also sort of assuming that role so to give you an example in my chapter i'm trying to think about how i uh, who is indian but who's often sort of in a way in in statistical terms counted as black how do i teach black british literature without sort of you know in a way adding certain pieties that 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 you know that this is this I need to sort of teach this more reverentially because it is repre- it is representing an extraordinarily um, historically oppressed group um, but how, how exactly do we sort of teach someone like Zadie Smith who's actually pushing back against that, that kind of an kind of simplistic reading and, and, and therefore you know while writing the chapter I'm, I am confronting my own prejudices that, to some extent, my teaching is some kind of a historical corrective to racism, when that is not why we should only teach literature, we should teach literature, because we are showing students that look at the sort of intrinsic merit, the play of signifier, uh, the, the kind of um, the verb and ambition of this particular act of literature so yes of course you know the social and political context can never be divorced from any uh, kind of teaching or reading but we need to also kind of you know uh, always think of the aesthetic uh, in relation to any kind of political framing of the work
1: Thank you so much. These are so important concerns that you have highlighted, which I hope you'll be able to like dissect like more specifically in the different questions that would follow. So, but I do have a follow-up question though, about like, like the broad, like your your approach to this project, right? So so I mean you have like what twenty six chapters. So how did you like arrange it, structure it? What went behind the planning of this huge volume that has so many different like attentions and so many different focuses? Can you speak to like your work behind organizing the whole project? Uh, oh, at all
2: 27 chapters, yeah. but uh, Anki can yeah. tell
1: you. Yeah, yeah, uh, Anki.
2: 27 chapters.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, I mean, I'm looking at the book, you know, we have uh, four sections, identities, methodologies, interdisciplinarity, and literary studies, and canon revisions. And we, and these are not sort of watertight chapters, you know, there are, there are kind of a lot of a uh, um, lot of overlap between, um, let's say, a chapter on not teaching African literature ethnographically uh, with not teaching black British literature ethnographically. We, I mean, what we had in mind was scope. We tried our best. This is a, something like this can never really represent every equity seeking group as mm-hmm. Atto as says, but we were thinking about scholars who think intersectionally, who have a sort of a commitment to uh, kind of in a way, a curriculum revision and expansion in the, in the sense that their own work has revitalized certain core areas of uh, kind of this periodized study while also bringing that extra that it's it's kind of they have, you know, for instance, Nigel Lisk you know, who uh, has really sort of revolutionized the way in which we consider the connection between um, romantic studies and empire so we did have, in so we were drawing on the work that you know some of these contributors did and thought how wonderful if he would be able to do that sort of a bird's eye view chapter on how to decolonize the 18th century literature and critical theory curriculum so you know i mean we were both thinking big but we were also thinking in a very sort of um, microscopic way that you know so people who would be able to um, address their own space and time. Paul Giles is writing about Australia in connection with his oversight of the university as a whole. Um, but also sort of in a way, um, uh, kind of go big, you know, kind of mm-hmm. provide a blueprint for scaling up. So what Nigel is uh, what Nigel needs to again, go back to that example is he starts with a contemplation of his own Regis chair, which is something that is has a very strong sort of colonial history. So nothing is innocent of meaning in the university when you think about how the curriculum itself, and I mean, I'm sure you know Gauri Vishwanathan's Masks of Conquest, looking at how the curriculum, actually mm-hmm. the framing of the curriculum was very much part of the, the, the kind of um, population management that it's happened a- in India.
1: Hmm. Thank you so much. Um. Adam, yeah.
2: did did you want? Well, just just quickly. I mean, there's. Um. I don't have much to add to Anki's uh, response. But in terms of, uh, it's impossible. There are things that um, we didn't include. For example, uh, decolonizing science fiction. You know, science fiction, because of course, science fiction requires. Uh, we have to reflect on it, or or decolonizing graphic uh, novels for example. So there are areas that we, we couldn't, but the, but what we wanted to do was for people, to invite people who have reflected on these questions. Nigel Lisk is a great example because his chapter starts by positioning himself as religious Chair in the field. And then he, he gives us a, a reconstruction of the field that shows his blindness. That's a, a very, very good, you know, um, it provides a a very good uh, window into... But the other really good chapter is, uh, is in the same canon revision section, is Geraldine Heng, Mm -hmm. decolonizing the medieval literary curriculum. Her chapter is highly intersectional, you know, because she talks not just about, about the ways in which, uh, so most medievalists will will argue that race, as a, a category, is irrelevant to medieval studies race as a category appears much later. Now, her argument is that race had surrogates, you know, so a conversion, so the encounter with with different religions, often the religions were quotes for a form of racialization uh, and so on. It's a wonderful chapter, it's very intersectional, but also the chapter uh, by uh, Ronald Charles, Decolonizing the Bible, because of course in English literary studies the Bible is everywhere. You know, we we don't think about it. It, it becomes a kind of uh, inert wallpaper. But he looks at how the rereading uh, the uh, Revelations. You know, both contextually in the period in when it was written and what it was being used for, but also. In a different context, in terms of application, in his he's from Haiti, in Haiti, what the Haitian evangelicals are doing with the this apocalyptic uh, text, and how they are, uh, I mean, from from his account, you can see that there's a lot of misinterpretation and misapplication, but it's strategic. So these are some of the things, and there are many other examples we can. We can highlight you know Stefan Hegelson on Marxism and postcolonialism which also allows us a, a different uh, genealogy it's a braided braided genealogy of postcolonial studies because postcolonial studies has always been in dialogue and sometimes contradiction with Marxism beautiful chapter so that was our interest our interest is the general purview decolonizing but be as specific as possible, so each chapter will perform a service, which is specific. You know, Anki's chapter on uh, on teaching Z.D. Smith, for example, is a particular. So it's not just Z.D. Smith is writing about. It's a black women's writing, in the United Kingdom. So all of a sudden, you are seeing it differently. Uh, so that that's, that's 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 what informed our choices of, uh, we could have doubled the size of the book if we had time, yeah, easily could have doubled the size of the book.
0: If I can just add one more thing, uh Arnev, that in our brief and also in our conversations with the authors, uh, we tried to have a balance between the philosophical and also the pragmatic. You know, as Ardo says, you know, bringing it back to the classroom. That uh, on the one hand we are thinking about transcription, we are thinking of archive, we are thinking about the multilingual origins of uh, um, English, we are thinking about you know the relationship between metropolitan and vernacular. So we are thinking also very practically about the issue. Not just kind of you know in a way metaphysically and, and, and philosophically. And I think this this really um this is really was something that you know that, that helped us um that this is not this is not just these are not just the sort of theoretical questions, but we are routinely looking at the classroom as it uh, connects to
2: we're grounding uh, them. We are grounding these uh semi abstractions into the context of the classroom. Yeah, I uh, think.
1: I'm just in awe, like I'm just in awe of the kind of breadth and purview, as you say, of like the scope of this volume, like both like geographically, conceptually, temporally, you know, like time and space, everything like the kind all these different offerings that you have brought together and you have been able to successfully make them speak to each other. That's like a feat in itself, I feel. So thank you so much for talking about this. So, I mean, I think we can go into the specifics a little bit now. Uh, So uh, since this book is about decolonizing the English literary curriculum, can we first talk a little about the term decolonization? Uh, How are you defining it in this book, especially in drawing attention to how it is distinct yet interconnected with two of the other ter- uh the with two of the other terms that also keep coming up in the book uh post-colonial and anti-colonial so Anki can we start with you
0: Yes, and and we we sort of address this in the introduction or no that why are we talking about decolonizing in the age of the post-colonial I mean decolonization is a term that was you know used uh, in kind of Asia and Africa in the 1940s as these countries started to free themselves from uh, Western rule um and and that is we do address that it is a it is a problem of time and it is a problem of our time it is about sort of an interrupted um futurity you know if we think of the post-colonial as in something that comes after the time of the colonial as this ideality or futurity. You can see I'm echoing sort of Jose Munoz's terms here. um, Then um, that hasn't quite happened. You know, you can see and I I do think that we keep going back to the murder of George Floyd because the the connection between um, sort of systematic uh, colonialism and slavery and the way in which um, contemporary Western societies worked um, was made all too obvious that you know you did have um you did did have this kind of like a law and order structure which was in ingrained with you know these these ideas of racial difference so mm-hmm. um we, we were forced to kind of in a way go back to why hasn't post-coloniality being achieved and what might it mean to ask for something um kind of a much more radical much more um extensive and also much more kind of in a way as in as we have said about the way in which we have done the different chapters, much more sort of multifaceted and the the relationship with the post colonial is that this is about an um, a, 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 a sort of disrupted post-coloniality. It mm-hmm. is about sort of, in, and and I talk about, you know, the time of the decolonization, and this is a really wonderful article by Simon Gikandi on Chinua Achebe's uh, Arrow of God, where he thinks of it as an interregnum. You know, it is it is kind of this, this kind of peculiar w- kind of waiting room of history between a past that is continuing to shape the modern and a future that you can't quite, you know can't quite grasp mm-hmm. and it is that sort of time of interregnum and and with anti colonial you know and- as you know, we have cited, you know, Priyambada Gopal's sort of you know a very powerful article that we need to clearly at this point decolonization is is uh, has to go back again to to the anti-colonial thought, you know, to anti-colonial um um efforts and 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 draw inspiration um from from kind of anti-colonial thought. Um, um but this is I mean I do think decolonization is something much more um, it is Fano says that we do it with our muscles and our brains. It is a an extremely, extremely disruptive process. It is not a smooth transition from the mm-hmm. end of colonial rule mm-hmm. to what might come after it, you know, that the, and that this is something we have known in even in post colonial literature. These, these, uh, you know, that's precisely what Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children is about that this newly minted nation, the promise of the newly minted nation didn't come to be. Um, mm-hmm. it, it that that promise was sort of, you know, frittered
1: away. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Atta,
2: at well, she's, I mean, Anki has very fully. The thing also we must not ignore is that global capitalism. Is still doing lots of things to keep the formerly colonized in forms of bondage, economic bondage. You know, the loans that we have to take from the IMF and so on. The the guardianship. Uh, so, for example, the unequal um, terms of trade mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: in that uh, many uh, post post colonies uh, still provide their primary produce. Uh, and the, the processed products are then they're pro- pro- processed elsewhere in, in Europe or America, and then sent back. The nature of the labor market, for example, that they say there's a form of um, yeah, the United States, for example, uh, accept it's a land of immigration. So a lot of m- migrants come here. But when they arrive, no matter what kind of background that they have uh, educated, they are de skilled. There's a lot of this. De- so, international migration goes with de skilling Lots of people have degrees from wherever they come from, but they are de skilled. They are de skilled, so they increase the labor, the pool of surplus labor. And so, in other words, there are still colonial, you know, um, uh, both events and, and processes that are ongoing, and never mind the fact, as uh, David Scott uh, in Conscripts of Modernity uh, argued very persuasively, that the the post-colonized countries have reverted to forms of politics that are not necessarily liberate. India is a great example. Uh, Mm -hmm. India is a great example. South Africa has gone through periods where you wondered what's the difference between the post-colony and uh, the colonial. And so on, and lots of uh, countries uh, is, uh, formally colonized, whose governments, of uh, Sri Lanka is another example, whose uh, the the the, log- the political logic, is completely still colonial. So the decolonizing is also to scrutinize the forms of unfreedom now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of unfreedom, the forms of unfreedom now, and how we reflect on them. And how we find pathways, you know, not just to understand, but to break free of them.
1: Yeah, that that is fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I did have a follow up question on this as well. So, yeah. Um you'd like Anki you mentioned about gopal um, and uh, and 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 the idea and of the anti-colonial university. Uh, so I mean I'm thinking like uh, how does that the idea of the anti-colonial university fit into your vision of decolonization um like knowing that like, we are, after all, a part of an institution that has deep colonial roots. So how do we navigate these uh, through the idea of anti-colonial university? Can, can you speak to that a little?
0: I can I can sort of like, uh, uh, I mean, this kind of actually is uh, um, goes very well with what Arthur was saying about global capitalism, you know, that kind of knowledge is very much, as we know, the product of the, Neoliberal University and and one of the ways in which we as human humanities scholars um, are constantly trying to sort of try to. um, um, Extend the, the, the benefit of a humanities education is showing how it can also though it is a product of the neoliberal university it can also be a set of conjectures it can be about different and contesting you know viewpoints and and i mean this kind of you know this kantian idea of sort of working at unfinished knowledge you know, mm-hmm. I mean? so these are the ways in which humanities is doing this work already and and to go back to you know our volume and when we were when we had asked you know somebody to write about the bible and decolonizing the english literary curriculum or um, history of medicine and decolonizing the english literary curriculum we did have agonized emails from these authors saying how exactly did you think this had relevance to english literature and we like good, the good analysts that we are, we return their truths mm. to them, saying, "Look at the way in which you are reading history of medicine through the toolkit of literary criticism, through the toolkit of of literature in English." You know, Sloan Mahone's chapter dwells on Bessie Head, mm-hmm. so we were saying to them, "Look at how you are decolonizing history of medicine through." through the sort of insights that you have gleaned from your study of literature so i mean i do think that this kind of and 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 as arthur says that it could have been a much bigger book and i always mm-hmm. think of that sort of very famous uh, anecdote of latour about you know the uh you know he's 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 going to a, a sort of french run um i think it's an engineering school somewhere in the ivory coast mm-hmm. and he talks it up calls it a sort of racist situation. He says it's a racist situation that is hidden behind cognitive, um, pseudo-historical and cultural explanations. So we do think that this, this infection will take root and people will start thinking about decolonizing not just sort of in a way subjects such as english literature which obviously has a, a very strong connection to the civilizing mission to the uh, role of colonial education in you know erstwhile um, uh, colonies but also you know subjects such as science um and so yes i mean the it, to kind of go back to that i do think that what we have done with the English cur- curriculum is a very interesting template um, uh, which can be used with other humanities subjects, but also other science subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way, we can I mean, no one can deny, you know, that 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 we inhabit uh, um, kind of a neoliberal university, but we can still sort of in a way make sure that Ms. Edward Said says this in his revision of Orientalism that if I did not believe that knowledge could not be non coercive, I wouldn't write this book. So you know, this is somebody who has written about the, the the sort of inextricable implication of knowledge and power. But he says, I would have not been able to write this if I didn't have the hope mm. that knowledge can be non coercive. Mm. Similarly, I mean, I do think that though we inhabit these global capitalist neoliberal structures, we still have this hope that knowledge can be contestatory, knowledge can be non coercive, you know, mm. and it can, it can be emancipatory.
1: Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I told you, do you well, have Just a...
2: quickly, the, uh, the one wonderful thing that uh, Anki said about the toolkit of English literature for decolonizing uh, other fields, such as medical humanities, uh, biblical studies, and so on and so forth. Because uh, this is something, we mentioned this in passing in our introduction. Mm-hmm. That is, so people use literary texts in uh, in contexts other than literature classrooms, this is re- anthropologists use it, history. Historians use literary texts all the time to illustrate various things. Obviously the medical humanities and even in the uh, cognitive sciences, you know, the, uh, neurobiology and cognitive sciences and so on. So for example, uh, detective fiction what the detective fiction do is not just in the in the English literature classroom. So the tools of so going back to Anke's point that that when we, we she we invited the uh, uh, Malone mm-hmm. uh, and and she was wondering what am I going to do? She said use the tools of English literature to look again at the medical humanities, humanities, at the history of medicine and see what comes up. So in fact, there is more than, of course there's more than one prong, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach.
1: Mm-hmm. It
2: is decolonizing the literature classroom, but also deploying the kids from literature to, to look again uh, in a different way at different uh, disciplines and areas.
1: Thank you. Uh, so I mean I think like our next question kind of uh is connected with this. So what what do you think are the main challenges that uh, challenges to decolonizing the curriculum? And how do, does one constructively try to address those challenges? Uh Atto, mm-hmm. do you wanna Start, yeah. The first
2: thing, of course, is personnel. Yes. you know that's, mm-hmm. that's actually the starting point. We need more uh, people of color, uh, black and brown people. We need more women. We need more disabled people. We need more and so on and so forth. And there was always going to be bump against the limit. There just is not enough resources. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that those of us who have money to get into the system, we are overburdened. Mm-hmm. no week passes where i don't think of something new i might teach to you know to change perspective but i can't do it all by myself so the first challenge is uh you know uh, people you know the personnel mm-hmm. how to actually increase the number of underrepresented minorities women uh, you know indigenous peoples and so on and so that's always going to be a challenge because they will tell you we just don't have the budget. We have Mm -hmm. many priorities, So that's the first thing. The second thing is for uh, departments to acknowledge that actually we do have a problem. So the small shift from English literature to literature in English, you'll be amazed at how radical that shift is because English literature places... The literature originally written in English are the Apogee and also Britlet Brit,
1: Lit. Mm-hmm.
2: Brit Lit, you know so that's that's the height of it and then the rest come somewhere. Whereas if you think of literatures in English, there's a completely different ball game. The other really radical you know thing that this will um, we're, we're talking about difficulties. there's a chapter in the book uh, by Aksha,
1: Mm -hmm. Saxena,
2: Saxena, Mm -hmm. on vernaculars, English and vernaculars. And she makes a really fascinating point about English being a vernacular in India. So English being one of the vernacular, what are the implications of taking English as a vernacular in England? But actually, there's a more radical uh, imputation from what she says, because English is a vernacular in England itself. So if you've been to England before, you will know that someone coming from Liverpool speaks a kind of english that you can barely understand from compared to someone who has been to oxford or cambridge and so on and so forth so that actually there are vernacular forms of the english language and there's a politics to speaking or writing in a certain way in english in the united kingdom itself so in other words that language is a political instrument so it's not just Is not just a a kind of transparent medium. There's no transparency to it. But as soon as you start investigating the language itself as a a vernacular among vernaculars to itself, you come to see how politicized it is. Of course, this point was made, but not in this way, by Griffith et al. uh, The Empire Writes Back. They wrote about Englishes, but didn't conceive of English. As a vernacular, they were thinking of Englishes elsewhere, you know, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in India, which is fine. But that was the first instalment of the argument. English variants of English are vernaculars inside of England itself, and 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 this this is uh, actually. But to get people to acknowledge, you know, that uh, that's uh, so there, there there are these difficulties. We have to keep. Um, Expanding the imagination of our colleagues because sometimes the resistance is due to a failure of imagination. W- what will Chinua Achebe teach me about Sophocles? Someone might ask, you know, why sh- why should I read, you know, um uh someone rigidly, What will he teach me about the history of the English novel? Something like that. It's actually a failure of imagination, but we know what to to teach you. You know, Anki and I and those of us who work in this area, of course, if you want to understand uh, Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, read Achebe, and you'll see, you know, the comparisons and so on. So the other thing is there's a kind of uh, failure of imagination which we always have to contend with, which uh, I would like to say now less than, say, 20 years ago, but it's still there. In the sense that you have to persuade them that what we are doing is serious stuff is good for the curriculum in general. Sorry, from time to time, I mean, my light is on it, <laughs> and it keeps going off. I don't know, I've asked I them to come and yeah, increase so, so I have to always get up and do a, a, a jig. A jig. <laughs> I
1: mean,
0: for me, you know, the key um, challenge for from my sort of location is that sort of very pernicious division between the core curriculum and electives that what has to be transmitted because so much of a kind of traditional English literature course is actually the transmission of literary history from old English to I mean, we don't say this anymore. But when I first joined, you know, people would say Beowulf to Virginia Woolf, you know, which is kind Mm -hmm. of scary, that's kind of where uh, when I joined in 2002 as a postdoc, you know, this Mm -hmm. is where Uh, This is how the English uh, literary history was seen. Virginia Woolf was the modern. And so for me, that needs to be dismantled that, you know, there are certain compulsory papers. um, And yes, you do have, you know, scholars, these sort of agonized um, um, uh, kind of questions that how on earth can I teach a person of color when there are no there are no women let alone person of color writing in this uh, century in English and and there are so many ways in which you can revitalize and this is something you know the chapter on Shakespeare is looking at what Shakespeare is being what is being done to Shakespeare in the US-Mexico borderland you know how and I do think that while so much of uh, our thinking literary critical thinking is informed by T.S. Eliot's idea of, you know, a tradition and individual talent. You know, his argument is that there's this hypertrophic tradition, but it uh, an individual talent has to situate itself in that tradition. Mm-hmm. But the second, fair enough. So you have to this is not IT. We don't, um, you know, treat the past as dead wood uh but the second part of his assertion that new talent also shakes up tradition we don't kind of think along those lines that every belated writing every belated you know something with talent um has the potential to actually really deconstruct the tradition that he is mm-hmm. himself saying is very important for that newness so mm-hmm. it's a sort of very very symbiotic relationship that we don't quite remember That is very important for any field to stay alive to to be read by all the readers um that can read it now you know i mean there are more um there will be in the near future more sort of non-english english readers than there are uh mm-hmm. today you know with the sort of spread of english in china for instance spread of mm-hmm. english in india mm-hmm. um so um you, for for these periods to remain vital they will have to they will have to connect to mm-hmm. these translations and adaptations and, mm-hmm. and afterlives, you know, um, but I do think that we need to kind of in, in a way go back and to, as Art said, that what will this teach me about Sophocles and, and we need to kind of say that this is not, this presence is always already there, you know, Byron is thinking about Asia uh, Dickens is sort of you know thinking about the sepoy mutiny in India and and these are on the the history is very much there, I mean this is Tony Morrison's very powerful argument in playing in the dark that American literature. which which has for a for the large part completely ignored the black presence is actually only understandable vis a vis the black presence that all these. Characteristics that we associate with American literature would be meaningless if we did not think about its suppression and repression of that black presence. So there are many ways in which we can dismantle that center periphery uh mm-hmm. di- divide um this this idea that certain things are important and compulsory and other things are a hobby mm-hmm. because it is a sort of connected world you know to go back to that slogan you know i'm here because you are there mm-hmm. and that's the way the world is and that's even even more so um uh today and uh and and also kind of in a way so not just sort of saying that there is this presence but also looking at the way in which tradition can continue to stay relevant Mm -hmm. only when it allows you know these these sort of insurgents and these sort of Turks from elsewhere to come and come and sort of intervene often you know I mean Lacan says you know I love you therefore I mutilate you that mutilation is an act of love it's Mm -hmm. it's an it's a desire to engage engage Mm -hmm. with the past which has actually been complicit in my Mm -hmm. colonization in my in my sort Mm -hmm. of uh, subjugation but I still want to engage with it
1: Mm So, uh, this book is definitely going to be an important resource, not just for researchers, academics, scholars, students of literary studies, humanities, social sciences, but it's also going to be an important resource for uh, educators. Uh, at different institutions looking to decolonize their curriculums and educational programs. Uh, I mean, I myself am a part of a team that is tasked with rethinking and reorganizing the world literature curriculum in my university at FGCU. So, So keeping this idea in mind, what recommendation or advice do you have for departments and faculties aiming to decolonize their curriculums? What steps can they take? What must one focus on? What pitfalls should they be mindful of? What should they prioritize? home? do you wanna?
2: To- hire more people. I hire more people who can teach this mm-hmm. stuff. That's, the, that's a baseline. They will say we don't have money, but that's mm-hmm. uh, always repeated, I hire more people but in terms of even the 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 you know the personnel that are available think of um, the relationship between the core curriculum and every every the english department has a core and has electives think of the relationship between the core and the electives in a more dynamic way in the sense that the electives are not to be, to be conceptualized as enclaves oh. so Oh, a course on Indian literature is not simply a course on Indian literature. It's a portal to understand the curriculum in general, and the and the and the syllabus. The, the you know African literature, or minority writing, or women's writing has to be crafted in such a way that it's in constant dialogue with the larger you know the curriculum. In other words, the the curriculum has to be dynamic in all its parts. So it's not. Core than electives, you know, electives and core are always in conversation. You know, the point that, uh, you know, Anki and I were making about uh, Achebe will tell you something about Sophocles, there's a way of incorporating that insight into a, 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 a syllabus, in the sense that you are not reading Achebe, and this is what I tell my students all the time, like you are reading the New York Times, Achebe is not a journalist and Things Fall Apart is not a, 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 a journalism. It's a piece of literature. But how do you read it bearing in mind all the other literary texts that surround it and impinge it upon it, not just from Africa? You know, so that's the first thing. The, the other thing is that us who teach minority literatures have done due diligence in understanding the, uh, the canon. For example, I teach courses on Shakespeare. I teach courses on on, uh, on tragedy. I can dilate on any number of texts. Same with Anki. Our colleagues, uh, because under the guise of specialisms or specialization, they don't continue their education into other areas outside of what they are looking at, and I think that's bad because in the end. The, the core areas become you know fossilized. They are separated from trends uh, elsewhere. So So this also requires that the way we train our graduate students and our faculty, they should always be thinking of, what do I need to learn more? Do I need to do something about, you know uh, you know, Latinx women's writing? I'm a medievalist. But do I need to learn more about Latinx women's writing and see whether it might uh, animate something in medievals? I mean, I don't know, but it's a good thing to, so that the individuals on the curriculum have to be dynamically inter- interacting with each other all the time. And the final thing is the way we read, you know, uh, you, you, the attention that the Miltonist. Requires to, to deliver an idea on Milton. It suddenly switches off when you have to read um, Zadie Smith, just to take an example. Zadie Smith, she's talking about Black women, multiculturalism, we know what it is, just forget about it. No! Zadie Smith is a serious writer, and her works are actually quite challenging, you know, so they have to be attended to not as testimonials. I think I may have mentioned this already. They are not testaments to black life or mere testaments to black life. Obviously, they are, but Z.D. Smith is doing much more than that. And Anki's chapter actually makes a point of, of this, that Zadie Smith feels a kinship with people from in the canon. Uh, you know, Ian e. Foster, she said this more than one. Ian yes. e. Foster, she feels a kinship with Ian e. Foster. So what, how would we understand Z.D. Smith in dialogue with EM Foster. Anyway, so the, the curriculum, this business of core and then electives, it's it's a practical it it has practical usage, but it's fossil. Some people can take a degree, English degree, and never once have even heard of someone reached Because it's not obligatory. You know, it's it's not entirely possible to mm-hmm. complete the degree yes. never have even heard of Rushdie. Why? And never, never mind reading it. That should be impossible. Should be impossible for you to complete an English degree anywhere in the world today and not have, uh, uh, you know, had a deep engagement with writings from outside Euro America.
1: Thank
0: you. I just wanted to. I mean, Otto has really covered this so beautifully. I wanted to add something he wrote. Otto wrote in the in the piece that we co-authored for um, Contours, where he again you know he enjoined us not to think about you know the african writer or Rushdie or Kutsia no. uh, or morrison as uh, native informants and you know kind of these ethnic sociologists and he used the word subliterary they do not treat them these works as subliterary and that's an extremely important distinction that you know you you read it with the kind of critical ballast you would bring to the so called mainstream or the the canon and I, I had something to add to this i had two very quick points one is that don't just look at postcolonial literature or literatures in English in circulating as world literature. Use them also as theory. So you know, I mean, sometimes you know it's a very limited way where we are using kind of the toolkit of um, a certain kind of uh, Latin Christian literatures to understand literatures coming from every other place on earth. You know, and I find Morrison, Fanon, um, Brathwaite, Walcott. Saeed, extremely generative, you know, I mean, I I want to sort of kind of look at their theory as literature as well. And I I want to sort of not just read it as postcolonial theory, but theory you know, I want to kind of remove that 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 kind of qualifier that it, this only applies to sort of in a way um, the school of resentment, you know, that mm-hmm. Harold Broome called all these equity seeking groups. So that's one point that, you know, don't read it as subliterary. read not just the literature, but also read the theory, read the meta critiques that these authors have generated, read the theory in the literature. Um, I mean, Achebe is a fantastic example for Achebe's idea of, the, of tragedy that Atto has uh, written on, for instance. The second thing I would say that our book is doing is it's not looking at one language world, it is about the English literary curriculum, but it is looking at what in the different places that sort of many-tongued English is, you know, and uh, uh, as Otto says, that it's not just a question of, you know, India where English is a vernacular, this idea of kind of the vernacular, something that is in currency in a way that doesn't necessarily serve the powers that be, um, you see this in different sort of Western and non-Western contexts, And I think one of our strengths is that, you know, our contributors, are they they inhabit different language worlds though they are teaching english that they are aware of other languages they are aware of you know different kinds of intertextual intratextual, intralingual interlingual exchanges happening all the time and this is what they're bringing to a certain kind of monolingualism that that the traditional english uh, literary curriculum uh, espouses
1: Thank you so much. This was amazing. It was a very enriching conversation. Uh, I mean, again, like uh, I'm in awe, like I was in awe reading this book and and now having this conversation with you both. uh, It's just been like so enriching and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot as I did. Uh, I just want to take the time again to thank you both for finding time from your busy schedules uh thank you so much uh thank you thank you
0: thank you you very much and always a pleasure to see you
2: thank you of course anki